This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is burning questions, not people. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, friends. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So good to be here with you. On this episode, I have Dr. Mark Gregory Karras. He wrote the book, The Diabolical Trinity, Healing Religious Trauma from a Wrathful God, Tormenting Hell, and a Sinful Self. Now, just a warning, we do talk about very serious health topics. The mention of, of unliving yourself um, is, is mentioned several times, um, and it's, it's just, this is heavy stuff. We talk about hell, the fear of hell, so just be aware. Listen, I'm not sure where, where you're currently at in your headspace. When I was going through the thick of my um, really just anxiety and panic, anything would just trigger me really hard. I mean, if I heard certain phrases, it was uncontrollable. So I just want to be, I just want you to be fully aware about the episode you're going to walk into. Mark is a family therapist. He is trained. So this is a really helpful conversation. I think for a lot of people, we talk a lot about ways to start cognitively, um, rethink and and uh, loosen that grip that so many of us um, have experienced with things like hell and you being just a bad, terrible person. How do you let those things go when they're so loud and in front of your face? This podcast talks a lot about that. So I think you're going to enjoy the episode. But again, just a warning, we do talk about very serious topics. That being said, as always, I will never not say this. Thank you. Uh, for listening to the podcast, for watching it on YouTube. Just thank you for being here. It means the world. If you, if you want to support the work that we do, you can share this podcast. You can share this with a friend, put it in your social medias, tag us. I, I love seeing tags. It's so encouraging. If you want to support the work we do financially, we are a nonprofit organization. That's how we're able to offer everything completely paywall free. That's why you, dear podcast listener, does not have to subscribe to anything beyond the typical podcast subscription to get every episode in every interview in its entirety because we're, we have people who donate to make this work sustainable and free for all. So if you want to become one of our 400 plus monthly donors, you can donate at the link in our bio. All of our finances, I'm not sure if I say this super often on here, but we say it a lot on Instagram. All of our finances are completely transparent. You can go to our website right now and see last quarter's profit and loss statement. It's all right there. We are not here to hide things. We are committed to financial transparency. Uh, all of our fi finances are overseen by um, um, uh, an accountant and a treasurer. There's budget set. It's all there. You're not giving to me personally. You're giving to the organization that is the new evangelical. So just keep that in mind. Um, okay, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Mark. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all next time. Big news, friends. The podcast is heading back to Theology Beer Camp hosted by Trip Fuller. Now, Noah and I went last year and it was an amazing time. We met so many of you and we're doing it again this year in October. You'll get to hang out with podcasts like ours. You have permission with Dan Koch, The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns and Jared Bias, and so many more. And there are amazing scholars like Adam Clark, Thomas J. Ord, and John Dominic Crossan with more speakers and podcasts to be announced. The sooner 
you get tickets, the cheaper they are. In fact, if you use promo code TNEGODPOD, you'll get $25 off your ticket. Let me tell you something. If you are looking for better ways forward in the Christian tradition, this is the event to come to. Yes, you get to hear from some amazing speakers and hear some amazing lectures, but the secret sauce in beer camp is that you get to hang out with these folks and listen to them in conversation. Plus, you get to hang out with Noah and I for a few days and have a great time. Use promo code TNEGODPOD for $25 off your ticket, and I'll see you in Missouri in October with me and Noah, Trip Fuller, all the great scholars, all the great podcasts. I'll see you then. All right. Well, um, Mark, well, Dr. Mark Gregory Harris, it is great to have you on the podcast. You wrote a book called The Diabolical Trinity, Healing Religious Trauma from a Wrathful God, Tormenting Hell and a Sinful Self, which means you pretty much wrote a book for our audience directly. <laughs> you must have had all of us in mind when you wrote this book. Um, so I, I was. I was. Yeah, clearly you did. Um, and so thank you so much for making time being on the podcast. It means a lot. No doubt. Great to be here. Looking forward to the chat. I'm going to ask you what, what I ask all of our guests. Uh, give us yeah. some background. You, I don't know much about you. How did, did, did you grow up in like <laughs> Christian circles? Uh, I think you are a, uh, you're a marriage and family therapist. How did you mm. get from you know, how you grew up to writing a book called The Diabolical Trinity? I think that would be an episode in and of itself, but I'll give you the very short condensed version. Cool. Um, yeah, grew up in a pretty non-religious household. Uh, mom was a drug addict. Um, she would die of a drug overdose. Father was mentally ill, still is, uh, but lived also with my stepfather who was in the Pagans, a motorcycle gang. There's actually a, a best-selling book that just came out on uh, a federal agent uh, being embedded within his group uh, on Long Island. Uh, but my stepfather did wind up passing away. Um, so yeah, little wild story, death and murder is in there and chaos and drugs and violence. So pretty wild background in that way. And so that was the milieu in which I was immersed as a young kid. And, uh, so very, very depressed, lost, uh, suicidal tendencies. I think one of the saving graces was me being the picking up the guitar actually, and I think that probably saved my life. And then uh, playing eventually in a progressive metal hardcore band and opening up for national acts. And Which ones? Um, well, this, this dates me a, a little bit. Uh, overkill. Okay. Um, suicidal tendencies. Yeah, all right. Um, you know, so that sort of uh, hardcore, you know, metal-ish background. I'm a professional drummer still, and I grew up playing in, like, progressive, like, rock bands. You know, playing in four and in seven and in nine. So that's kind of my jam. So solidarity. Yeah, yeah. So Pantera and Metallica and Megadeth and all that good stuff. Um, wow. Yeah, that was... Uh, so all that to say, fast forward, then my brother was in a oneness Pentecostal church and mm. he would tell me about Jesus and I'd be like, F you, I don't want to hear about Jesus. And then had some wild dreams. Uh, I would, I used to think of them as demonic experiences. Not sure today. I, in my deconstructive mind, there is a phenomenon called, um, uh, what is it? Uh, paralysis, some sort of sleep paralysis. So that's a story in itself. Then fast forward was at the end of things, tried to kill myself by getting AIDS. And then I know it all sounds dramatic and I was in a field all by myself. And I said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me because I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm. And that changed the rest of my life as a teenager, 21. You know, I consider myself a master deconstructionist, but I can't deconstruct that all the way through. It was a profound experience, uh, a love that I've never felt in my life uh, up until that point, and crying because something reminiscent of joy and peace and just 
yeah, it was a pretty wild experience that just changed my life. But I got saved from well hell, one hell into another, and that mm. was in a one as Pentecostal church. Some great people in there. I don't want to split it all bad, but I couldn't fellowship with people who believe in the Trinity. I I was sort of considered the pastor's armor bearer, and so in that tradition, uh, the taking that from the Old Testament, where I was the pastor's go-to man, and what can I do for you, pastor, while he studies the word of God. and <laughs> But I wasn't able to go to college. And uh, so it was a very constricting environment. And I was so bound up in that kind of religion, I couldn't even drink soda without wow. feeling I was defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit that wow. I thought I would be in danger of hellfire. So, but, so there's so much to that story. I don't want to spend all, all but then I uh, got out of that and then into a, a typical middle-of-the-road evangelical Christian college, ran away from that cult into that college. That was a beautiful experience, though rather difficult. I remember having panic attacks, and I didn't know what was real, who was God, uh, who was Christian. It was a pretty wild, disorienting experience, but very uh, important for my journey. Met some vineyard people there. But fast forward, I wound up being ordained in a Southern Baptist church. I worked in a Korean Presbyterian church for four years. My master's of divinity was from a Methodist college. And so, yeah, I have a lot of diverse sort of background in that way. Wow. Well, I can't say everyone listening has your story uh, to a T. I mean, oneness Pentecostalism is a little, um, you know, it's not, it's not the most common expression of, of Christianity. Um, but, um, a lot of the ingredients of like what you talked about, I think are familiar for a lot of our audience. I mean, I grew up, um, you know, very reformed evangelical and conservative. So mm -hmm. fear of hell, uh, for sure. Um, a wrathful God. I mean, that is like, that is the center of Calvinism, which was what I was introduced to early on. Um, yeah, you know, and yeah. also the fact that I am totally depraved and evil and rotten. Um, right, so for right. you, for you, what was the, I mean, it sounds like you got quote unquote saved later on in life and eventually yeah. kind of walked away from that. What was the moment for you where you like deconstructed what you were saved into at, at, a, at, a, at an age that is much later compared to someone like myself who grew up in it mm. since day one? Yeah, I, it was probably a culmination of experiences but I, um, you know, I was always an inquisitive soul. And yeah. so I would always ask questions and it's just part of my makeup. But I, I just think it was a lot of different experiences over a period of time. I think spiritual metamorphosis, a term I like to use rather than deconstruction. Um, yeah. You know, it just happens to most of us. So we don't choose it. It just, we can no longer push the cognitive dissonance down. And I think, Actually, I think it was my writing the book on petitionary prayer. That was sort of an unraveling of a lot of other understandings of God. So that was then tied to divine violence. So to petitionary prayer, praying for my mom, uh, addicted to drugs, just praying and fasting many years uh, to no avail, uh, praying for my brother, paranoid schizophrenia, um, you know, took him to deliverance churches and again, fasting and praying. And yeah. then I'm like, what the, f I don't, I don't want to curse. You can say it. What, say fuck. What the, what the heck is going on with prayer? You told me that God could just snap a finger and instantly make something happen. And God is supposed to love me. And I'm praying and fasting and working as hard as I can, punching demons in the face, <laughs> binding this, loosening that. Yeah. And for what? For them to die? Uh, and my brother basically is, you know, yeah. So that then caused me to deconstruct petitionary prayer. Then the image of God, well, God can't be in control. Like you can't tell me that God is allowed and planned this with my family. And then looking at the evil, uh, you know, in, in the world that I can't, no matter what you tell me as a Calvinist and evangelical Christian who believes in the sovereignty of God and that God is responsible for every action or reaction that occurs on the planet, I couldn't do it. I could not believe that. And so that then unraveled, well, maybe I can't believe some of the scriptures and then my deeper reflection on, on the nature of the Bible and then, well, God also can't be violent that way, killing Egyptian babies and 
flooding the planet, creating creating a smorgasbord for sharks, for grandmothers and babies, and that didn't make sense. So, yeah, I think that was the slow erosion of a lot of other kind of doctrines. I mean, listen, I you're you're in in the best way you're preaching to the choir here, right? Because I, I think right. a lot of us are listening to you talk, and we go, yeah, like you know, I I had these questions, and and at least in my tradition, I was allowed to ask those questions as mm. long as I arrived at the right answers. <laughs> so you know, mm. it was kind of even more deceptive. Where it's like, oh, sure, Tim, ask your questions about hell, but don't worry, the game set and match. Like if you don't end up at, at eternal conscious torment you're probably not a real Christian anymore, right? Um, and I think a lot of us yeah. found that to be kind of the case. So when did you get into becoming, you know, a, a family therapist and in, in, in all, mm. like, what's that journey like for you? I think because of what I went through with my family and yeah. I was, uh, I have two other brothers. Um, I have a half sister, but I always felt like the older, I have a twin brother and two minutes older than him. But the bottom line there is I think as the older brother in function, always fighting for my brothers, standing up to my stepdad as he was beating the shit out of my mom and then me getting hit while everyone was scattered somewhere. I was always mm. the protector and yeah, the wanting yeah. to. So I think that kind of put something in me to want to help. And then so I think that counseling was in one way to work through my own shit. Yeah. Because I, you know, I had to work through a lot and, yeah. but also this desire to love and to bring healing yeah, and to make a difference in the world. Uh, yeah. And so I think that was a big catalyst for me. And then being a Christian and then seeing the life of Jesus and really taking hold of um, Jesus's heart to heal the sick, um, to bring good news to the poor, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives and to set the oppressed free in that way. I feel such an affinity. Um, and so Jesus in that way is such a model and inspiration for me in that way. So that brings us to your book, the diabolical ah. Trinity. Yeah. Um, I, I have not had a chance to read the book just yet. I'm holding it in my hand. I I, uh, I got, got it a few days ago. But my guess, and I could be totally wrong, so just tell me yeah. if, if, I'm, if I'm not on the right path here, but I'm assuming you approach these three topics more from uh, the mental health side and like the psychological side than the theological side directly. Is, is that kind of the case in this book? The book before that, Religious Refugees Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing, entailed more theology. Yeah. But I wanted to write this book because I was meeting with a lot of clients and you know, just meeting with other people who wanted nothing to do with theology or even Jesus talk or God talk or don't give me scriptures. Or So I said, you know what, I'm going to write a book that has nothing, like I don't, no scripture verses at all. I think I have a four, uh, but that's only used in a way to show, uh, to deconstruct Christianity. Right, in right, a way. right. You know, using it against itself. So it was a fascinating experiment to write a book in that way. So it's mostly from a psychological, philosophical, and sociological lens. Okay. So, oh, I see that David Bentley Hart endorses the book. So that's ah, a huge okay. win for you. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian McLaren endorses it. So you got, you got some great names on here. Dr. Laura Anderson uh, is wonderful. So I, I, I am kind of curious because, you know, listen, yeah. to be transparent, I talked to a lot of theologians. I talked to a lot of scholars and, and, and we've covered, you know, more of the theological unpacking of like how the biblical narrative about you're totally depraved and wicked and eternal hell isn't uh, nearly as clear as, we, as we've been, we, as we've been taught mm -hmm. to believe believe it is but i have always wondered on like a psychological level right yeah. when, when when you grow up i mean we can use me as as the test case here we can almost mm. enter into therapy for a minute you know when mm. i grew up being taught very early that yeah. i was you know depraved and wicked and that i had to pray a prayer to jesus and trust him to forgive me of my sins or else i would just spend eternity in hell i mean i would just be mm -hmm. tormented forever psychologically uh, in, in, you know via the book how how have you found that affects someone's psyche especially when they're a young person uh, as mm -hmm. opposed to maybe an adult discovering that uh, any thoughts yeah i think both the adult like myself who's experienced what i would call religious trauma um you know, religious trauma is religious trauma, so both young and old can experience that. But the there is a different dynamic of growing up in it, 
and yeah. just that being that much more entrenched and that much more being able to oh, so so when you look at the psychological effects some could be an obvious one um anxiety uh, hypervigilance you know there the researchers have actually um talked about and have a scale for what they call hell anxiety so that mm. is attempted to encapsulate the apprehension many people experience regarding the concept of hell so there's a hell anxiety scale and it comprise uh, comprised of nine statements you know such as uh, sometimes it's difficult to control my worry about hell or i feel an intense fear of hell when i do something i'm not supposed to do so hell mm. anxiety is a real thing but there's also a twofold thing and i don't know if it talks about that in this, that scale but there's not just the anxiety about your eternal destination, but the anxiety that comes from loved ones, right? Yeah. So, you know, that in itself, to think about all the people who may have this increase of anxiety, uh, some even a hypervigilance, to the point that it affects their sleep, that they could have nightmares about it, that it actually decreases their sense of vitality in the world because they're expending that energy to be fearful rather than using that energy to love themselves or love others in a greater capacity. And that just that one piece, and there's other consequences, but just that one piece is just a sad a repercussion of toxic religion. Hmm. Right? So we have anxiety, anxiety could be one. For me, the biggest, one of the biggest consequences is shame. Yeah. Right. So Shame, the sense that I'm no good, I'm dirty, I'm tainted, I'm sinful, my righteousness is as filthy rags, I'm no good, God looks at me like I'm a worm. Right. How the hell could that be healthy? So we right. know that shame uh, has, it's, you know, it's sort of a foundational emotion for every sort of pathology that we can think of. You know, whether it's uh, addictions, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression. Uh, so it has a lot of consequences. So view of self, if you think you're a piece of shit in the world, you may do those things which you feel like you're worthy of doing, which may not mm. be the best things to do in your life. So that gets into another consequence of identity. And it, it's so layered because then you have the identity piece of now that I'm getting out of this religious matrix, sucking from right. the teats of the church, being fed all this, who I am, what I'm supposed to do, in our case, what we're supposed to wear. I mean, women weren't even allowed to cut their hair because they would be in danger of hellfire, wow. right? Because there's a passage in Corinthians that talks about women's yeah. hair and, and something to do with angels. It's the covering, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So there's so many ramifications. So anxiety and shame, shame is then linked to self-criticism. And so that oftentimes is the fuel. It fuels criticism. And then the inner critic that says, Hey, you're going to go to hell, man. Hey, you better not do this, man. The church is going to hate you. So then the inner critic just totally bashing yourself. It's like sleeping with the enemy all the time. Hmm. So between shame and self-criticism and identity issues and then rejection from community and then just creating an indelible mark on the nervous system that just, um, yeah, I mean, that's where trauma comes into play. And it's just a good distinction because there's a difference between adverse religious experiences you know, in other words, I may have had church experiences that, yeah, that sucked. That wasn't cool. I got angry right. at this person that hurt. But it may not lead to religious trauma. Right? Yeah. So it's just helpful to distinguish between some of these terms. And religious trauma, the bottom line, it has adverse religious uh, adverse effects. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe to ground this in like an example, I remember sure. being, uh, I'm 34 now, but I remember being maybe 23, 24, and I, for, maybe for the first time in my life, I was driving home late at night, and the thought mm. of like, well, what if I'm believing the wrong thing, and then when I die, mm. I'll be burning in hell forever, like how do I, and I remember mm. just feeling of like panic came over me, you know, just like, oh my gosh, like what if it turns out uh, Islam was the right religion and mm -hmm. I, I'm actually on the way to hell and my beliefs are not correct. Right. And that was kind yeah. of maybe those first moments when I, when I, I had this realization of like, you know, I don't want to burn 
in hell forever. <laughs> I just don't want to do that. Right. And then, right. you know, as I as I got older, um, one time I was talking to my brother who's not a Christian, um, even though we, we, we grew up in the same environment. And I'll never forget what he told me. He goes, you know, mm. hey, I guess I'm just not predestined to, to go to heaven. I guess I'm just predestined to go to hell. I remember mm. thinking like, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> right like like right, I, right. I i i don't like how that that feels to me i don't like this idea of a god who is predestining one brother to i, I guess spend eternal bliss and one brother to his to spend eternal damnation but, but this god is still good and loving and just and then of course you know this cycle of these spaces is so circular because that triggers the response of well i'm also mm. not god right so it's not my call to judge what god mm. does so i guess i just have to kind of yeah. let it be what it is and you have to almost like distrust yourself and also right, um right, you know right. but you're kind of forced to inhale very unsettling things that would not work in in any other context like for example you know people mm. often say god's a good good father he's a good father I'm like, you know, no offense, but if I treated my kids like how the God of Calvinism treats people, I'd be in jail. Right. (laughs) I would be in in jail if I treated my oldest son a certain way and then treated my other son in a way that led to his, you know, um, reprobation, so to speak. You know, essentially just planned on on, on treating him like, no, you're less than human. And so Mm -hmm. I, I, it is interesting to hear you say all this. I think for the audience, I think hope it's putting some, some pieces in place on a cognitive level because it is Mm -hmm. a pretty, it's a pretty difficult structure to break free from because you have like the God element, right? Like, like, like the, the, the highest ideal you can think of. Then you have right. how this God, how you're formed, especially I can't, I can't express to you, Mark enough mm-hmm. when you're, when you're young and this is all, you know, it is, right. you were so right. The, those trenches are so much deeper, right? Like they're, you're mm-hmm. just, you from, from the beginning, you just have this view of this objectively accurate God that is mad at you and that you are deserving mm-hmm. of all of that wrath and everything you do is bad unless you pray this prayer and become a follower of what I call now white Jesus. And mm-hmm. that is a very hard thing to break from in your late 20s because all of those neur- neural networks are formed and right. then people start right. deconstructing. And I, I, what I tell people is like the skyscraper of, of your identity starts swaying. When you start picking mm-hmm. at this and it's very right. unsettling for people to keep That's going. Right. So I understand why my, why my folks stay in that cycle because it's hard to break from. For, uh, frankly, it was hard for me. Caused panic attacks, put me in therapy the whole nine. It was very difficult. Absolutely. It's uh, and, and people who have said, and this is in the qualitative literature as well, that people talk about what I have called um, sort of phantom theology. Right. So phantom limb syndrome, when somebody loses an arm, for example, they could feel like it's still there, even though it's not and hasn't been for a while. So people like say, Mark, I haven't believed in hell for 10 years, but I still have some nightmares about it. And when I hear something on the, the, you know, whether it's on Facebook or social media or whatever, I can get triggered. And why is that? Because I haven't believed that in such a long time. And that's because that points to the nature of trauma, where it is in the subcortical nervous system. You know, you can't just think your way out of religious trauma. It's something that's Mm. very much deeply entrenched in, like you said, the neural networks. And so that's why I do spend uh, part two in the book is how to wiggle hell beliefs from the mind. And part three, over 120 pages, is how do we wiggle it out of our nervous system? So I do differentiate the two. But um, yeah, it's a lot of work. It takes a long time. Yeah, I mean, when I was going through my my mental health crisis, I mean, it was it was a, a couple of dark years there, and I had to learn quickly. I mean, I, I didn't have categories for anxiety that that didn't exist in my psyche. You know, no, no one gets if you're just depressed, just look outside, you'll be fine. That was kind of my take, you know, yeah. until it happens to you, and all of a sudden your world is just totally rocked. And one thing I learned, um, and I'm not sure this is accurate. Someone taught me this. It it made sense sense at the time. So again, feel free to push back. But they essentially said that like, you know, the part of the brain that like controls some of these feelings doesn't speak English. You know, like like, like, like you Mm. can tell yourself all day 
hell's not, you know, I don't believe this thing about hell anymore. God is good and loving, but there's still a part of your brain that like does not communicate with like cognitive mm-hmm. thoughts in that way. It just doesn't function that way. It takes time to kind of do that, that kind of work. Do you know what, does that make sense to you as a mental health professional and, and any insight there? Oh my goodness. Of course. Yeah. Oh, good. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, in our field, we distinguish between the prefrontal cortex, which is the logical kind of command center, you know, where that's where our thinking part of our brain is, but we have more of the emotional part and that's getting deeper into the nervous system. And that's where people could talk about the amygdala and stuff, you know, that parts of the brain that's geared towards, it's not about, you know, propositions. It's about feeling. It's about uh, the, you know, proprioception, the looking in the environment and scanning and not, it's not using words. It's some part of our, uh, unconscious, semi-conscious part of us that's always looking out and alert for danger. And so there are different parts of us. I mean, that's the point. And religious trauma, you can't work with somebody's prefrontal cortex to bring forth healing. I mean, ideas are great, but that's why the work has to be deeper. It has to go deeper. It has to bypass the defenses and sort of this prefrontal cortex part of the brain and do deeper experiential work where the trauma, and this is where working with maybe memories and traumatic memories come into play and using imaginary work and using real experiential exercises can really bring forth some healing. Hmm. So, so why these three? I mean, out of all the different ingredients that, that could go into religious trauma, right. uh, raffle God, tormenting hell, and a sinful self, why those three as opposed to something else? Well, I first I was thinking about just deconstructing hell and helping people, um, you know, work for through the religious trauma because of the yeah. hell indoctrination. But then I realized you, we can't have a hell without a wrathful God who created it, mm. and then we can't have a hell without evil, sinful people to be put there. So yeah. it is sort of this diabolical trinity this entanglement of religious doctrines that has bring for, brought forth a lot of damage to people's hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. So yeah, people can experience religious trauma from purity culture, uh, from, you know, um, you know, white nationalism, uh, you know, all different aspects of, of religion, but this is the uh, three, the diabolical Trinity I wanted to tackle. And, uh, yeah, other people are doing great work. There's other people coming out with some new books uh, at the end of the end of this year on religious trauma. So it's an emerging field. Um, yeah. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear it's an emerging field because a lot of people always ask me, like, "Hey, I'm you know I need someone who I can talk to who's a mental health professional and also understands." like religious yeah. trauma, especially evangelical or like Christian religious trauma, because a lot of people will go to a therapist. This happens all the time. I get a message like this and the therapist is totally great. They're qualified, like they're, they're educated, but they don't have the context mm. for like the evangelical faith crisis uh, thing that right, happens. Right. right? And yeah. so like my, my, my wife is maybe a good example of that to a degree. And you know, it's fine that I'm sharing this, but she goes to a great therapist, but that therapist has like no context for like church culture or like how those friendships right. can emerge and and what it's like to feel a certain way and there have been times where she's like man tim I, my therapist is great but i i said this thing about church and she just kind of gave me the blank stare like yeah that's nice you know <laughs> and so i know a lot of yeah. people are 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 kind of exploding out of the church and they're looking for people who have the training and the professional you know, um, acumen mm. uh, to walk people through the the mental side of what they just went through, and also give them yeah. tools to find faith that is healthy and, and bent towards human flourishing. Uh, mm. You know, not mm. towards this diabolical trinity. Frankly, <laughs> indeed, yeah. There's a lot of um, you know, religious trauma institute, the Global Center for Religious Research, uh, just some great. Uh, organizations and if you just tap typed in religious trauma therapist now they're just there's so many people with their platform their whole platform is specializing in religious trauma you know there's some interesting things about that that i'm i don't know there's uh sometimes there's a pop psychology understanding and uh, i don't know i don't want to knock that everyone's doing the best they can to help people all that to say there's just so many uh, 
therapists being trained in religious trauma stuff that it's, yeah. you know, so many people, websites and yeah. Yeah. So I, while we have some time left, I, I want to kind of focus on, on the latter half of your book, because I promise you right now, the audience is like, Tim, we already know we're fucked up. Like, I already know I have religious trauma. I already yeah. know about, you know, I already know this stuff, but like the question then is like, what do I do? How do I start the healing process um, of shaking myself loose from some of these beliefs? And I think one of the challenges for mm-hmm. a lot of people yeah. is that when we're talking about theology, uh, first, we're taught it as objective truth. Then we realize that that theology isn't isn't inherently as objective as we were taught it was. But we're also taught we also know that you know, hey, anything's possible. Like like in theory, there could be a wrathful God made by you know, or, or that made sinful people that that has created a hell where some of us are going to spend forever burning up. I mean, there's it's one out of a million possible solutions, right? But like mm-hmm. for some people, they might say, well, like we don't exactly know what happens when we die emphatically. So this could be a solution. So what if we're wrong? So for you, I'm sure yeah. you, maybe you had a yeah. client who thinks that, or you've heard that, 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 that question before. What are some of the, the, the ways you would approach mm. something like that, that kind of helps us navigate a better path forward? Sure. So, this reminds me of maybe part two, which is still a healing part to my book, and that is really getting into deconstructing the hell narrative. So um, I try to loosen hell's ironclad grip on, on people's minds. And so my thesis is, and I unpack this, and it has been pretty helpful for some of my clients and other people um, that have reached out to me. So I unpack the thesis that an eternal place of torment called hell does not originate from God, but rather is a result of human ponderings about the afterlife, morphing into a narrative of violent projections that create a glue that binds communities together. And so the hell narrative also feeds human pride and is used by people in power to subjugate dissenters for the sake of homogeneity. And then I also deconstruct the notion that the violence-prone God and eternal hell, I mean, I do that by exploring the absurd notion that are and you pointed to this that our intuitions about compassion, goodness, and wise discipline could be more loving and healthier than God's. But one of the key things I want to hone in there is I don't think people have thought about what is the function of hell. But that in itself has proved to be pretty powerful for some people. So I make the claim that there is a function of hell. But let's in order to do that, we have to narrow. I mean, we have to actually take a broad view, a broad lens here, that in every part of the earth, uh, you know, where there's people, there's religion. And where there's religion, there's typically afterlife narratives. And most of these afterlife narratives encompass some form of reward punishment motif. But then we ask, what, what is that? Like just taking a step back and saying, wow, so it's not just, like in the Christian tradition, it's something within humans that we feel a need to create. We're very a creative people, a species that in all these different uh, locations, we've created these narratives of the afterlife. What is that about humanity? And so I look at the function of hell, and here's my thesis. And I just did this the other day to make sure my thesis is correct. I didn't do this in the book. But the Gospel Coalition has the top 10 verses used for eternal conscious torment. And so I said, my thesis is in every one of those contexts, and people could look this up if they want, that there's two things either going on. One is to encourage the traumatized. So many passages of Scripture address oppressed and traumatized groups, such as the Israelites or, or Christians. So punishing afterlife narratives were used by biblical writers to provide comfort and assurance to these groups, assuring them that their suffering at the hands of other tribes and unrighteous individuals would come to an end. So the perpetrators and evildoers would be punished while the oppressed would be rewarded with a form of eternal life with God. Again, this is not just Christianity or Judaism. This theme shows up in other religions. But the other piece that's also in other religions is So look at any afterlife narrative, eternal conscious torment. The other piece here, the other function of hell is to promote community cohesion. 
So the, the concept of hell has been historically utilized to enforce religious doctrines and practices to maintain social cohesion within religious communities. I mean, the fear of eternal punishment in hell has served as a powerful motivator for individuals, certainly was for me, to adhere to religious teachings and norms, thus creating an in-crowd and an out-crowd, thus creating a cohesion within the community. That is the function. So then we see that maybe hell, if we look at the fingerprints, it's not divine, but maybe very much human. But that is the sociological, philosophical sort of ways of wiggling these from our, our minds. I like that a lot. It reminds me, you know, one of the moments that really helped me kind of um, not take this eternal conscious torment perspective so seriously and so likely was reading mm. Bart Ehrman's book, um, Heaven and Hell, which is pretty much just a history mm. uh, of mm. how mm-hmm. humanity has formed and has seen the afterlife, right? And right. once you kind of get like, I mean, and Bart's book is obviously pretty condensed he was trying to cover human history but like mm-hmm. even like his you know ten thousand foot view kind of demonstrates easily and quickly how different cultures view the afterlife differently and there's been a development not some objective reality that everyone's held on to who's been right. truly christian and that that helped me realize like wait a second if 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 arguably speaking right. tens of billions of people um have not seen the afterlife the way i have I would have to either be the luckiest slash unluckiest person in the world uh, where I'm just yeah. born at this time when I have God's ultimate objective truth or like these things are just much, much, um, um, you know, they're, they're a little more flexible than maybe I've been taught to believe. Right. And I right. think over time that kind of helped me think about that reality of like, well, maybe it's not so certain that if I die and didn't pray the prayer to Jesus, I'm just going to be burning in flames forever. Uh, given that the history that we, that where we can trace back these ideas. So th- yes, that, that yes. makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think for sure. So, so then how, I mean, so that's like the logical part, right? But that is the philosophical sociological aspect to it. Yes. Is that like the frontal cortex? Part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it could be helpful for some folks, right? So that's getting up here, and but we want to go down further, and that's what I do in part three. But can I just show one little other philosophical, theological point that is, is helpful for folks when you realize that this whole evolution of, of hell and eternal conscious torment, it would, it's kind of weird when you look at where the original curse was. Right. So the whole like narrative is Adam and Eve, they sinned and then does God curse them? And, you know, part of the punishment is eternal conscious torment. And if, you know, Jesus came and if we give our lives to him, then we'd be freed. You know, there's a narrative around this. But when you look at that narrative, it's kind of don't people think it's strange that there's no mention of eternal conscious torment and the original punishment and curse. Right. In other words, if Adam and Eve sinned, and that's why we're in this whole debacle, um, isn't it strange that God made no mention of eternal conscious torment? He just said, surely you will die. He didn't say, surely you will suffer in hell for eternity. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a little strange when you think about it. So it must have evolved down the evolutionary history, and I think by violence-prone, traumatized humans rather than a a divine figure who— gave that to us well okay i'm going to change direction here for a minute and then, and then we'll get into the nervous system side of it but i'm just got it, I'm, got th- th- this is pure speculation okay so yeah, yeah. folks i mean i'm just going to put that out there like i'm really asking for marks just pure speculation here um I, I just wonder how important these three ingredients are for um power structures to control people. Now, I don't want to sound super nefarious. I don't want to pretend that every pastor is in some is in their back room after service like, "Oh good, I just want to control people and keep them under, you know, my my grip." I don't think that is the case. I think I think that the average evangelical pastor, even pastor who might agree that yes, God is a wrathful God, uh, you know, and that we're sinful in hell. I don't think they intentionally or or cognitively see it that way, but these three ingredients are really effective at keeping people, you know, 
in the doors uh, to to tithe and to be part of the church and to you know and to kind of follow whatever the big focuses are going to be for that denomination or church. I mean, maybe it's a sexual ethic, maybe it's a lifestyle. In your case, Mark, right? Women couldn't cut their hair uh, lest they mm-hmm. be thrown uh, into the fiery pits of hell. Uh, and I'm assuming it was effective. I'm assuming women did not cut their hair because of that. So, what are your like? What's like just your speculation on these three things? Maybe one of the, maybe maybe what I'm trying to say is. Maybe we're not trying to rethink these things broadly because they're very effective in kind of keeping people in the doors of churches. Yes. I'm in in full agreement that another function of hell is that people, you know, in power, right, have used it as a weapon. And it's certainly been used by some folks to oppress those of different races, cultures, and ethnicities also been a weapon to instill fear in those who are LGBTQIA+. I mean, preachers, teachers, and religious people have been using this dehumanizing fear-based language uh, to kind of create this in-group experience. Some people are coercive and manipulative where they know what they're doing. Some, you know, I don't think every preacher is doing that intentionally, but there is a function of of people in power using it to legitimize, you know, oppressive structures. And certainly, yeah, when I think of, uh, I think I put a, an example of race in there of, uh, uh, what was it? Samuel Morse, where we get Morse code from, right. And yeah. just the, the ways that people have used hell narratives to, you know, oppress people and to other uh, people. And then to have this weird sense of, well, I need to save you. And then by saving you, then I'm the one in the power position. And then you are the, I don't know. It's just, there is a sick aspect to this. Uh, It's very disconcerting that it's been used by narcissistic authoritarian leaders in this way. But it's true. But not every pastor does it. Some pastors I know, they're just, I'm I'm preaching this because it's the word of God. I love God. I love his people. I just, I so care. And they would cry. I met people who would cry about people's eternal destinies, but I don't think they're using it in that way, but many people do use it in a, in a darker, with a darker hue. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, and again, to the audience, I, I, I want to be careful. I'm not accusing every single person who holds to these views as, as intentionally trying to manipulate people. But I do think that there is like an inherently manipulative aspect to this that, that can easily be used uh, for power and control. Right. I mean, this is kind of how I think a lot of cults operate, right. Is, is that they have a grip of a grip over people because of the fear of either them being seen as a, as a divine figure or that they have a special connection to God and know some kind of secret uh, that, you know, they, they then have to follow in order for them to be going to the good place when they die and not the bad place, so to speak. So I, I just think that that's an important, at least element to touch on in this conversation, uh, just so we have like some awareness to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact is that people have used hell narratives. I mean, women have stayed in abusive marriages because of it. Victims of sexual abuse have been silenced uh, because of it. Uh, yeah, creative minds have been stifled. Children have been terrified into obedience. Books have been banned. You know, it's it's this stuff goes deep in how hell narratives have been used by people and the effects that it has. It's um, that's why I'm so passionate about. Uh, it's so interesting because some people are like, "Well, I don't get it." Like I, I was taught hell. I I never had any problems. And that's a fascinating thing is that another person's yes. theological tra- traumatic trash is another person's theological treasure. And some people like, well, I, I praise God. Like God is just, God is holy. Like eternal right. hell makes perfect sense. Yes. You know, they don't experience anxiety about it. They're, they're in the in crowd. They feel good. You know, they're the saved. Yeah. It's just so fascinating that some can be traumatized and some can jump up for joy. I, you're right. I mean, and that is a much deeper conversation, but I, I, I still have friends in the church. I have one in particular who's a good friend of mine. And he told me, he's like, dude, I just don't have these kinds of questions that you have. Like, I'm just kind of cool <laughs> believing what I believe. And like, I'm just not right. that curious. And I'm like, dude, honestly, I wish I can be you some days. Like, seriously, like I wish I can just play the yeah. part, believe the stuff, not really question it and just kind of go with the flow. I am more like you, Mark, where I'm just naturally a curious 
I have questions I want to understand. And anyway, I'm, I'm sure there is literature out on like on maybe like personality types or like the ways that, that people function and maybe some connections to that. But it, it, I have noticed that you're right. Totally. For some people, no problem, you know, with the idea know, of, of eternal conscious torment. S- many people are like, well, that sounds crazy. <laughs> so it is inter- it's an interesting Warshak test, I think, for sure. It, it really is. And, um, you know, there's an interesting thread here, too. I mean, there's so many layers to this. Totally. First of all, you, you make a great point, and this is what I've said for a while. There's so much that could be done research-wise. I'm so interested in why, why some become traumatized by these doctrines and some don't. The research has not been done in this yet. But I'm interested in temperament, and I'm interested in attachment styles and, and attachment orientation and how that influences. So there's no research on this, but I, I have a sense that it's – I always find it's the curious, sensitive, compassionate, uh, expansive, open-hearted. Uh, I do know that the sociologist, sociologist Josh Packard said mm. typically these are the people in the church that – they like went all in, you know, they were, they really cared about truth. They really cared about people and God. And so I just wonder about those personality traits myself. And I, I look forward to that, that research on that, but. No, well, yeah. keep me posted because I'm curious myself. So, okay, yeah. so let's move in. We got about you know uh, five ten minutes left. Let's move into this third part. Like, okay, and this is arguably, I, I, I would argue for me, I know the yeah. least about. And I think it's maybe the most difficult for for um, us to calm down the nervous systems aspect, so to speak. So, yeah. I mean, my train of thought goes like this. Well, if there's a part of my brain that can't hear my thoughts telling it to calm the hell down and everything is fine. Mm-hmm. Um what do I do now? <laughs> like that's my only method of, yeah. you know, of of, of when I was having panic attacks, I just knew that I had to breathe, breathe, breathe and hope that eventually the feelings subsided. Right. But if it's like, well, yeah, maybe your frontal cortex can hear that, but this other, Mm. your nervous system cannot, that's almost more panic inducing. So, so how do you talk about that, 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 that in the book via the third part? Got it. So there's, uh, you know, two ideas that I, I think about facts will not heal the tracks and information does not necessitate transformation. So the trauma of hell indoctrination and many other uh, teachings, they're lodged in the tracks, like I said, of the subcortical nervous system. So since trauma's imprint is on the mind and body, knowledge alone is not uh, sufficient to heal. So it's Mm -hmm. impossible to lecture or um, talk someone out of chronic shame unrelenting inner criticism, unworthiness, helplessness, insomnia, rumination, flashbacks, nightmares, and disturbing feelings. So this is where I go into very practical ways that we can do that. But for the sake of time, I'll just say this. There's memory reconsolidation, which will mean not much to anybody. But let me see if I could put this in a simple terms. Sure. Since trauma is lodged in the subcortical nervous system, in these fragmented neuronal networks, right, within our mind-body, some interventions could be, well, let's say I have memories that were traumatic. In other words, we're going back to the origin of some of this stuff. We don't always have to go back to an origin because it could feel so global and some people may be like, well, I don't know where it started. But for some, they might have this traumatic experience of being at a church and being at a a play that was put on and just feeling the extreme terror as I saw demons on stage and, you know, Jesus was there and people were going to go to hell if they didn't do the right thing. And so one intervention could be, how do we, first of all, slow down? I'm going to be with you in a slow way, uh, being very attuned to your emotional experience, moment to moment tracking. I'm coming in with compassion. You know, we're dancing here together. But one intervention could be where we use imagery work, uh, compassion imagery work, to go back in time to bring some healing, for ex- hypothetically, to a younger um, boy or girl who is terrified in that way. And so we can have a compassionate figure. Some can use it, the adult self or 
Some can use a superhero, uh, an aunt or an uncle, so where we can go back in time. And literally the idea is to bring up some of the energy around this memory, but then mm. to give some TLC with something that is juxtaposed with it that's a contradictory experience, and in this way, a love-saturated experience, thus making that memory labile, meaning open to being changed and updated and revised. So now we know how to go back in time to update, revise uh, traumatic memories, thus relieving people of the negative emotional valence that surrounds the memories themselves, which then in the present can reduce that anxiety, bring a little more sense of calm in that nervous system. And that's been helpful, you know, for, for many, many people. Much more mm -hmm. intricate than that, but that would be one example. Uh, I would just throw out one of the most transformative experiences for me, and there's a whole chapter on this in the book, is the research and practical applications of self-compassion work. Mm. For me, it's a subversive middle finger. It is a fuck you to an authoritarian punitive God who despised you, who said that you had a deceitfully wicked heart, who there was no good within you. And like I said, your righteousness is filthy, like nothing good about you. And a community that says you're no good, you're a sinner, you're hanging out with Satan and mm. you're, you're screwed, right? So being kind to oneself, right? To be able to, for example, put your hand on your heart and just be there with a minute and just acknowledge that this is a moment of suffering as maybe some of these hell beliefs come to the surface and put the hand on your heart, feel the warmth of that hand, maybe increasing some oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, then acknowledging that I'm suffering along with an incredible amount of people with some of the similar experience and then maybe saying to yourself something you would say to a dear friend who is suffering. Uh, mm. May I be well in this moment. May I acknowledge that this is a moment of suffering. May I know that this moment will pass. May I know mm. that I will be okay. So in other words, we are reparenting ourselves in a way we are giving ourselves the love and compassion acceptance that we didn't perhaps get from that version of God or yeah. the community that was rejecting us. So there's many different examples of self-compassion work that's been transformative for my life and, and many other people. Mm. And do you recommend like, you know, for, for people to navigate that? I mean, it's important that, that there's someone with them who's trained on like ways to take them through that process. Is that, is that what, what you would advocate for? Yeah. Or are there like apps that people can use? Like, you know, I, I imagine sometimes like, I'll put it this way. Here's why I'm asking. Sometimes mm -hmm. I, I get the question of like, hey, I, I just can't afford therapy. Like I can't find anyone. I can't afford it. And like, I'm just desperate and I don't feel qualified yeah. to give any kind of mental health uh, advice. That's just not my lane. But it's like, what do you like? What are some recommendations you have for people who might be in that spot where they're like, I need the help. I want the help. I can't find or afford the help. What do I do? Right. Well, you know, in the book, I try to make it most of it down to earth practices that you could do in your own. So, yeah. so again, there's other components. There's self-compassion work, inner critic work, a whole chapter on the inner critic, a whole chapter on parent wounds, because mm. a lot of this can be so entangled with mom and dad or primary caregiver wounds mm. that it's really helpful to distinguish between the religious trauma that I've experienced at the hands of, a, you know, or the ideas from the church or the Bible. And for example, so let's put this to my life. There was no coincidence that the God who was cold and punitive and would, could hurt me at any moment. And that would, if I did something wrong, would withdraw his loving presence was just like my dad. Right. And so the entanglement of that wound yeah. along with the religious trauma, um, it was so important for me to unpack because with the working through religious trauma, integration is so important. So I could talk about and integrate the wounds I experienced from my dad or from my mom or the church and God and the loss here and the grief here. And, and so that's where we make take it from global to specific, bring integration and thus bring a little bit more calm to the nervous system to know yeah. where it's all coming from is so important. Yeah. But you know, this stuff, I, I admit it, it is expensive. 
You know, I'm an expensive therapist. I do some pro bono stuff, but it's, you know, there's a lot of podcasts on out there. There are, if you just look up religious trauma, um, so many different, there's coaching programs. Angela Harrington uh, has some great workshops and online courses one can do. They don't have all this kind of money that they would need to see a therapist. And uh, even Jim Palmer, you know, he's he's like the grandfather of, of religious trauma, um, you know, exposing all this stuff. You know, he sees people through his coaching and much cheaper than in a therapist. So there's people, if you just search, um, there's people, yeah. there's faith group, book groups, there's all kinds of things out there that could be a, a supportive for folks. Awesome. Well, I got to say, Mark, it was great having you on talking about this stuff. The book, friends, is The Diabolical Trinity, Healing Religious Trauma from a Wrathful God, Tormenting Hell, and Sinful Self. Are you online? Do you have a public platform? Can folks follow you? Uh, you know, Plug any of, yeah, your, yeah. of your socials away if you have them. Sure. Um, I am a dinosaur. All I have is Facebook, to the chagrin of many of those around me. Uh, so yeah, Facebook, I have a website, markgregorykaros.com. And then the, the book should be, you know, online uh, purchase. Awesome. I think anywhere. And, and there's an audio book as well. Oh, good. I'm glad it's an audio book. People always ask me that. So Mark, it was truly uh, great having you. I'm sure we'll talk again. And thanks for your time and for your work. Awesome. Great being here. Wishing you well. Thanks. <laughs>